All right, flipping your Bibles, and we are in the book of Exodus. And we are at one of the great pictures of redemption here in Exodus. Of course, we're on the cusp of it, and actually we don't see it. Well, Lord willing, come to that next week when they actually cross the Red Sea. But this is a picture really of how faith functions, how we live a life of faith, and what it means and what it looks like. I titled the message this morning, The Look of Faith. But with this in mind, maybe you'll see some parallels. Let me call to mind another account of a great deliverance in the Scriptures. Of course, you recall this instance with our Lord. He's walking on the water, and the disciples see Him in the boat, and they think it's a ghost, and they're freaked out, you might say. And He calls to them in their fear, and He says, "'Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Stop fearing. I'm here.'" I'm the one who's with you. But then, of course, when we studied it in Matthew, leave it to Peter to call out and then say, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out on the water. Peter, of course. Walk on water. Are you serious? I mean, Jesus is God. Of course, he can do that. And you now, Peter, expect that you can do the same. I mean, that's some pretty serious faith, isn't it? And sure enough, Peter puts one leg over the boat as Jesus calls him and starts to walk to him. And here's how Matthew tells it. This is in Matthew 14. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, so far, so good. I mean, again, what was that first step like when you just put your feet over and went out onto the water? I mean, incredible. And he's walking toward Jesus. But then we read this, verse 30 of Matthew 14. But when he saw, Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Or Peter so well illustrates what often takes place in our own life. We, we step out with emboldened faith, thinking and knowing Christ is with us. He's given great promises. Really, we can do anything when he's with us. We're going to the storm. We're going to storm the gates of hell for him and for his namesake. And then we step out and then the trial starts to get serious. The winds change, our circumstances look ominous, and what happens? We take our eyes off Jesus. The challenge takes all of our attention, and so then our circumstances suddenly become so much bigger in our mind's eye than Jesus ever was. And actually, by correspondence, when the circumstance appears so big, Jesus starts to shrink and become very, very small, as if he has no influence or capacity to help us in this situation. And so what do we do? We fret. We worry. We think everything depends upon us, and so we give ourselves to overwork. We're resting on our own efforts. Or we're going back and remembering all of our old failures, and so we're despairing. The point is, we're focused on ourselves, we're trusting in ourselves, we're looking at ourselves, and we're failing to look at our Christ. Our faith stumbles, God seems small, doubt creeps in. Well, the word from Exodus with this great deliverance is this, faith looks away from yourself, faith looks away from your circumstances, and looks instead to a God who is far superior, who's much bigger. We look to a big God. So the word this morning, I don't know what you came in with as you walked into this assembly, as you're preparing to hear the word preached. I don't know what was on your heart. I think almost all of us could talk about a trial that we are undergoing, a challenge to our faith that we're walking through. 
And so the word is, the question, when you look around, what are you actually looking at? What are you looking at? What are you focused on? And the word from Exodus is, look with faith to a bigger God who's stronger than greater in all of these things. See things as they really are. See this world with a big God lens. That's what Exodus is going to expose for us this morning with these three faith-building exhortations. Look, have the look of faith in a bigger God in first way that you would follow His guidance. And we see that here at the end of chapter 13, that you would follow His guidance. You would trust where He's leading. You would trust where He directs you. A look of faith in a big God is a trust that He guides us, that He shepherds us, that He will take us where we need to be, even when, and this is so key, even, isn't it? Even when you can't see how the good is going to come of this. And that's where you trust His assessment instead of your own. And it shows, just as this text opens, in the very route that God is going to take uh, as He leads Israel out of Egypt. Of course, they had been enslaved for 400 years. There had been all of these plagues God was sending that Israel, God's firstborn son, would get to be let go. And we came to that final tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son, and Pharaoh finally relents. So now God is actually leading them out of Egypt, but as He does so, He does not take them on the path that they would expect. Look at verse 17 of chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, the way of the land of the Philistines, this was actually a major uh, thoroughfare or highway out of Egypt that would go up into the promised land, kind of running right along the Mediterranean coast, again, straight up out of Egypt, right into Canaan, the promised land, that kind of center land there of Israel. And that, that was the known trail. That was the, the thoroughfare. If you were traveling from one place to another, that's the place you would go. And furthermore, they had come out of Ramses, which is a city there in Egypt, and the on-ramp, so to speak, the trail runs right beside Ramses. So the, where the city that the Jews had built and where they marched out of, it would be easy to catch this road. It was straight before them. If you're going to head to Canaan, this is the easy way. And so apparently, God's not taking them the easy way. He's not taking them the straight path. And so why not go that way? Instead, God takes them around by the desert and leads them more south. Look at verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, it says, equipped for battle or in groups of fifties. Again, this just seems like a really funny way to go. You're trying to go northeast, and God's taking you elsewhere. In a similar way, if we were trying to get up to Washington, D.C., we're not sure why, but anyway, we'll just say that, okay? And if we're going to go there, how do you go if you want to, you know, really hate life for a while? You go up I-95 is what you do, right? That's the most direct way if probably this morning, Sunday morning, is probably a pretty good time to actually be on I-95. So we jump on 288, and we go north, and maybe you catch the, you know, the 295, and so you're going to go up I-95 up to D.C. But then, uh, instead, we're going to jump on 288, and instead of catching it around that way, uh, once we hit 64, instead of going east to catch the 295 around, uh, I start going west on I-64 towards Charlottesville. 
And everybody in the car is like, uh, Rick, we're going the wrong way, buddy. And you might think I have no idea where I'm going when I keep going west on 64, and then we blitz right past Charlottesville. You're thinking, okay, where is he going? Oh, uh, we're going to catch 81 and then go north until we get over to I-66, and then we can go due east right into D.C. That's the long way around, if you're not familiar. Now, why would God do it this way? Why would he take them the totally long way around to get there? Well, he tells us, Moses does, what God was thinking. It says, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Why does God take him this long path around? Because he's a compassionate God that knows his people. He knows their weakness. This is why. He's caring for them in this long about road. He knew their weakness of faith. When they would see the equipped, experienced Philistine soldiers, he knew they'd be afraid and try and even run back to their slavery in Egypt. And even as it says, they mark out, marched out equipped for battle, or later on, that they marched out defiantly. But it seems to be almost just for show, for bravado. This is a skittish people, weak of faith, and again, as the Lord knows, would be easily frightened by the sight of these skilled soldiers from Philistia. So they're going to go a long way around. God knows what His people can handle he knows their frame, so he takes them the, not the direct way. It's really an example of that old adage, God will never give you more than you can handle. Now, that also saying can be misunderstood, okay? For God doesn't intend to give you much of anything that you can handle on your own, to be clear, such that in a way there's much he permits in our lives that you cannot handle at all. And yet, it is also true, He does not put you in any situation that you can't handle. What does that mean? That you cannot live in a way to honor Him through it. That's what it means you can't handle it. He is going to make sure you can handle it. You can honor Him through it. Why? Because He knows that He's with you. That's why. And this is key. So we'll see in this text. By His Spirit through Christ, He is with us to guide us Direct our path every step of the way. Furthermore, as we look back to this text, his faithfulness marks the journey out of Egypt. And seen in maybe a strange reference back, but they take with them, Moses takes with him out of Egypt a box of bones. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. This seems weird. Taking a box of bones with you, what is this about? Well, that quote that's in verse 19, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here from Joseph. It's actually a verbatim quote from the book of Genesis in the 50th chapter. Right before Joseph dies, he tells the, his brothers and the other sons of Israel, hey, when I die... Be sure not to bury me here in Egypt. Put me in a box, that is my bones, because I know God's going to come back, and He's going to be with His people, and He's going to fulfill His word that He gave that we will inherit the promised land of Canaan. 
even if it takes 400 years. Joseph trusted in the promise of God, and so he was directing them, don't bury me here, bury me in the promised land, just like my forefathers. And so here we are, God's being faithful to his word. He's keeping it just as he had said. Again, even though you might say it took a while, but not in God's time. And God not only guides his people most faithfully according to his promise and with great compassion, taking them right where he wants, knowing them, but there's also with that, we've alluded to it, there's this constant care as he leads Israel out of Egypt. And the care is shown in his very presence that goes with them. That's portrayed by this pillar of cloud and fire. Look at verse 20 now. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So embodied, if we can try to imagine, by this like tornado of cloud and fire, God leads His people in the wilderness And constantly so. Note this. It says the pillar did not depart from before the people. It only departed to lead and guide the people, and the people all followed. We see this as we take their 40-year travel throughout the wilderness. They only move when the cloud moves. And when the cloud stays, they stay with it. He guides them every step of the way, step by step, day after day. God is with them. He's with His people, guiding them, showing them precisely where to go. Now, as we reflect on our own life, you're like, man, I kind of wish I had one of those tornadoes to kind of show me exactly what I'm supposed to go do and when I'm supposed to go do it. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of cool? Because to be clear, God doesn't lead His people quite that way anymore, if you're not aware. He doesn't have a flaming tornado where He tells us all to be and where to go. Though it sounds kind of nice. I mean, imagine again, he could tell you where to be, what to do, when to do it. Every major choice of your life, yeah, just keep following the cloud. You know what college am I supposed to go to? Just follow that flaming tornado. Know right where to go. What job should I take? Should I stay at my job? Again, follow the cloud. Should I marry so-and-so? Again, follow the cloud. Should I join this church or some other church? Again, where is the cloud? And again, I think we might assume that's, that's a great thing. But if we're anything like Israel, even when God gave them such kind of directions, and we are a lot like Israel, by the way, by the way uh, we'd still struggle with God's counsel and His guidance. Uh, Israel will, in just a few short verses... And you might well imagine, not everyone's going to be so keen on the road, you know, with the path that the cloud is taking. Can you imagine yourself? Why is it going that way? That's not the way to go. I've been up to D.C. before. I know the way to go, right? Or what about when it doesn't move for a while? God, come on. It is time to go. What are we waiting on? You see, they had still maybe a broad idea of where they were going. They are going to the promised land. But even still, even with the fiery tornado cloud guiding them, they didn't know what the path was. They didn't know how long it was going to take. And they had no idea really when they were going to get there. 
And in the same way as a Christian, we know where we're going. We know he's leading us. He has a place reserved in heaven for us for all that look to Christ for saving. But our path to get there? It's a mystery. And though we don't have a cloud to follow, though, understand he has not left us without any guidance whatsoever. Actually, we have a far better than a fiery tornado to follow. First of all, he's given us his counsel, his full counsel in this infallible book, this word. You can go back and read and review and reflect on and memorize and chew on and pray through and have studies through with friends and family. Like We have this book. Israel didn't have the book. They had, for do we know at this point, no part of the book. It wasn't written yet. So maybe part of the book of Job. And you have the whole counsel of God right between your fingers and maybe right on your phone in any moment. And more than this, we have His Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, don't forget this. Oh, we might want the fiery cloud to lead and show us the direct way, but the fire of God's presence by His Spirit lives in you to direct you, to empower you, to empower you to walk by the truth of His Word. Pastor Phil Riken put it like this. He said, Sometimes we would wish God would give us a bright cloud to lead us directly. Yet the truth is, is that God gives us all the divine guidance we need, but in a much better form. He's given us the fire of His Spirit, and now we have His glorious presence with us all day and night. It's as if the column of the cloud and the pillar of fire have come right inside of us. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit lives with you and will be in you, John 14, 17. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, he reminds us, and now by the power of his holy presence, God is always with us to guide us. You don't need any cloud. You have the Word of God and you have his Spirit right within you. It's not as if you're without divine guidance, the kind that you need. And we have it better because he's actually right inside of us. But then the question is, But do you follow it? Do you listen to his guidance? And not merely do you listen to his counsel, but do you obey it? Do you do it? Do you follow it? Do you follow where he leads you by his word, where he teaches you, where he reproves you, where he corrects you? Are you content, though, to say, listen to expositional sermons, but then not to be changed by them? And if so, why not? Why don't you follow His counsel? Well, from Exodus, I think we get the theme is, well, it's because you don't trust His counsel. You don't trust His guidance. Where we object to his guidance and say, nah, that's where we're saying, God, I think my way, my strategies for life are better than yours. That's why you choose your path over God's. That's how it was from the very beginning in the garden. It's practical, if not actual, unbelief. It's a lack of faith. Now, it's true. The way the Lord leads and directs and guides His people is not always the most efficient way. It's not always the most direct way, but it is always the best way. 
But that takes faith, doesn't it? Trust. And from even here to remind your soul, his way may not be what I want, what his counsel is and where he's guiding me may not be what I desire, but I know this, what have I seen? He's compassionate, he knows my frame, he's faithful, he will keep all of his word, and he's with me every step of the way. So I trust him. I will heed his counsel. Furthermore, we can trust his plan. How do we look of faith into a bigger God? I mean, it's related to what we just shared there, but we trust his plan. And we see this as we turn to Exodus 14, now looking at verses 1 to 9. We look with faith to maybe that unknown next step. And that means looking to God, knowing that he knows what he's doing, even if we don't know all the details, and we know his plan is good. Because actually here, what we turn to in Exodus 14, we see that there's further insight about why God's taking them the way he's taking them and how he's going to get there and why that way. And again, it reveals that God has a great plan for all of this. And yet, as we'll see, that does not mean it's a great plan. It means it's easy, painless, or smooth. Actually, for the people of God, it's going to look kind of scary. And there's a word there for us. Even God's good plans for our lives, they will include trials, you see. These trials will be a stress test for your faith. So you know where you are. And in that way, it's going to purify you, won't it? Burn away the dross, the unbelief. Well, let's see this as we look at chapter 14. Because the Lord told Moses and presumably all Israel then uh, where he's about to take them. And again, from the get-go, the route just becomes more and more curious. Why are we heading towards Lynchburg? It's kind of what you'd be asking. But let's look at this, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, this would be strange to them. Again, turning back, what is going on here? And it's quite strange to us, because let me share with you why this is particularly so mysterious. Because as we try and read, interpret this verse in particular, some 3,500 years later, the trouble is all of these place names that we just looked at and maybe have a hard time pronouncing, uh, they're lost to us. We really have no idea where they are. So we have no real notion precisely where Pi-Hahirath and Migdol and Baal-Zephon and Zuccoth and Etham are. And in part, we expect, because these were probably way places. They were, they were out-of-the-way locations that did not have a lot of people in them, so you don't find them uh, much behind afterward, nor much written about them. Because think, what do we have? We have some two million people like nomads, running through the land of Egypt. So they need a place to camp, and they're not going to be able to camp where a lot of other people are. But either way, what's clear is that there is, again, a kind of surprising change of direction, again, about what they expected. Again, back to verse 2, it says, Tell the people of Israel to turn back. So again, instead of taking the most common route, I-95, out of Egypt... They're not, they're, neither are they taking the second most direct route, which would have cut across uh, the middle of the Sinai Desert. Instead of going north or even going west to 64, it's like you find out you're, fine, you're, you're going south on 85. 
God, where are you taking us? It just looks like the wrong way. Like you're going the wrong direction. And such that from afar, it just looks like the Israelites, they're lost, they're aimless, they're leaderless. They're confused is what they are. And that's exactly what God's plan was. Because look at this. Why am I turning you all around? Verse 3. For Pharaoh will save the people of Egypt. (laughs) They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And in the Hebrew, the idea there of wandering is about It's like wandering about confused. Do you know that feeling? I do. It's like when I run upstairs to get something, and then I hit the landing, and I think, I have no idea why I'm here. And then, so what do you do? This is what I do. I wander around, especially into my bedroom, thinking it's somewhere around here. Rather confused, hoping I'll find what I'm looking for to jog my memory. I hear some giggles. I trust I'm not the only one. That's kind of what Israel looks like here. They're wandering around in the desert. It looks like they were heading east. Let me show you a picture. Map. So you can see Egypt there, and they're going to head to the the top left corner of your map there to Canaan. And again, the fastest route was to run along the Mediterranean Sea. There was a major highway there. You see it highlighted in the map. This is from the ESV Study Bible. Helpful. Uh, And the second route is a a path that kind of cuts right through what's that Sinai Peninsula. You see maybe the word Sinai kind of in the middle of the map. There's a little gray line, but that's the the next major road. But you'll notice that's not the road they take. Uh, That's not the way God takes them. So it looks like they're going to go east out of Egypt, but they're running into the wilderness. Remember, that's like a desert, and it seems like we don't like that idea. And so they're, they're venturing, trying to find some other way, so they keep heading south. And I have circled there in red, probably where they ended up. Um, Seems like they wanted to go east, and they were just confronted by the desert, and so they just kept drifting south. And they end up there, and where they end up, I know it's hard to see on this map, and you can look maybe in the back of your Bible as well, but at the tip there of the Red Sea, they're right beside the water, and they're right beside uh, some kind of large hills and mountains right running up along to the coast. The point is, they've been funneled into this corner. They're really in a, between a rock and a sea and a hard place. It's like God's plan for them was this, I'm going to send you on a getaway path, and it just leads right into a cul-de-sac. They're stuck. But God had a plan for this. He knew and he wanted Egypt to see this, to see how stuck they are, to see how there's no hope for them. Why? So that would draw Pharaoh out to go after them. Look at verse 4 then of Exodus 14. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And then note this. And they did so. That is, Israel did it. They're like, okay, this sounds like a good plan. I like this idea, God. Yeah, let's be your bait. You're going to draw Pharaoh out and you're going to crush him. I can't wait to see this. See, he's going to put Israel in this vulnerable situation. Pharaoh's going to see it. He's going to go after them with all all of the the great hosts of Egypt. 
And then Yahweh's going to come to the battle once more and show them who's in charge. He's going to show them who's the beast of the Middle East. It's Yahweh. He is the one worthy of fear, obedience, and worship. He is the Lord God, the God of Israel. And no surprise, God's plan works. Pharaoh sees Israel floundering. Pharaoh takes the bait. And then by verse 9 in our text, he's mobilized his choice charioteers, and he's then chased, and he's overcome the trapped Jews. Look at verse 9 then. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them, the Israelites, encamped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. So maybe to the Jews, as they heard the plan, oh yeah, you're going to get glory over Egypt, that sounds great. Well, now Egypt's actually there, chasing them. And things starting to look perilous, disastrous. Despite their numbers on their own, Israel doesn't stand a chance against Egypt's fighting expert army of charioteers. Now again, if, they, if Israel could keep their wits about them, if they could remember, oh yeah, but this is all part of the plan. God's in control. If I can look to God and His promises, I know things are going to be okay. But in their initial faith, it gives way with the sight of the Egyptians to now paralyzing fear. At first, the plan sounded great, God, yeah. But now when push comes to shove, doubts are creeping in, and we start asking ourselves the question, what have you gotten me into, God? And, and you know, that's true of every trial or test that enter our lives. God has a good plan in it, even the test and trial and difficulty. He's in total control, even of every situation, even in the hardest ones. He has a good plan. But you understand, in the trial or test, the very nature of it, your circumstances won't be telling you that it's a good plan. Your heart in unbelief or struggling with it's not going to be telling you that it's a good plan. Actually, it's part of the nature of the test, isn't it? Things are going to look quite the opposite. It's going to look like you're stuck between a rock and a sea in a hard place. Because it all depends where you're looking at in one part, doesn't it? It's like when I was a kid, and I'm trying to psych myself up to get on a roller coaster. Uh, for a while, I'd been traumatized, taken by my brothers on one, and I like wouldn't touch one for years. And then when I was like 27, no, I was a little younger than that. But anyway, uh, I tried to venture back on one, and I just kind of had to keep reminding myself that despite how things appear, and again, you've probably been near a roller coaster, all the screaming that people are doing, all of the loud sounds of the car, all the feelings in my stomach, despite all of the sensory things happening, I'm telling myself, but things are perfectly safe. The lap bar is going to hold me in. It won't just suddenly give way. I'm reminding myself, the amusement park is not out to kill me. They don't want a lawsuit on their hands, I'm pretty sure. So despite how everything sounds and how everything looks, there is, you could say, a good plan here. Fun to be had. I just have to see past the appearance of everything to see what's really happening. Well, in our trials and tests of faith, God calls us to look up and keep our eyes on Him, to remember His plan. 
That's why James, the apostle, will even command us something that's so counterintuitive. You know this verse. James 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you win the lottery. You don't need a command for that, I think, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That is crazy talk. When I encounter trials so often, I'm just trying to find the eject button to get out of this thing. What do I need to repent of, God? What what do I need to change? I don't want this anymore. How can I count it all joy? I mean, how can you even do that? Well, it begins with knowing He's in control of it. He has a plan for it. It goes on. Count it all joy when you meet trials For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, you know, you know this truth as you read the Scripture. Even as He sends a trial to us, it's for our good. We see it there in James, it's for strengthening our faith. The trial is your faith's stress test. It's your faith's workout. It's putting your faith into use to strengthen it, giving, us, giving you endurance in the end to make you more like Christ. I mean, how many of us in this room, if you've walked with Christ for any time, can attest that your faith today would not be where it is if it wasn't for the Lord bringing you through some trial? And if you don't know that, maybe that's a great place to go to lunch, is to go take a brother or sister who's walked the faith maybe a little bit longer and say, How has the Lord been faithful to you in a trial? Because I guarantee you they have a story. And it's going to tell you about how God's compassionate and faithful even in the darkest of times. But to get there, to get spiritually ahead through a trial, so to speak, you have to remind your soul. you got to keep preaching to your heart, God has a good plan for this because He's a good God. But admittedly, His good plan might not be initially what we thought was good. And sometimes part of the trial is burning that out of us. It's reorienting our priorities, isn't it? Again, consider that comforting verse about God's sovereign control. His sovereign control of everything, Romans 8, 28. What a precious promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we are like, amen. For those who are called according to His purpose, praise God. But the next verse, Paul explores what that good purpose is. And it may not be what you think, especially when the trial begins. What's his good purpose? Verse 29 of Romans 8. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good that he's working. And really, that is your greatest good. Doesn't always feel like it. But his greatest good, the great purpose God has for it, is to make you more like Christ. So when the trial or test strikes, or even the hint of it crests the horizon, what are you then looking at? What are you focused on? Are you thinking about, here's all of the ways this is going to go horrible? You're starting to fret. You're starting to worry, get anxious. Maybe you're poised to complain. Oh, 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 I can see it coming. I knew, God, this was going to be horrible. 
Well, if that's our response, what's going on? We've shifted our focus away from Christ, and we're all up into the circumstance. Instead, we need to preach to ourselves the very truth. He has a plan. It's a good plan because He's a good God. And if you have questioned about whether He's a good God or not, we got to go back right to the cross, don't we? And then you'll know, oh, he's, a most, he's far better than I knew. He has a plan. He's in control. And his goodness to us in Christ assures us it will be good in the end. Finally, then, to return to the text, we see that his rest, or that we can rest in his work alone. When we look to a bigger God, that means there's a way, looking at these verses 10 to 14, we can rest in His work alone. And the watchword of just these few verses, and really this chapter, is this word look or watch or see. Because again, we're returning to that question, what are you looking at? What are you focused on? What's on the forefront of your mind? Is the presence, the promises, and power of God, or is it your problems? Which one looms larger in your mind's eye, God or something else? And again, the example of Israel here teaches us the more other things dominate our mind, our thinking, our hearts, the more you're going to be given to worry, anxiety, and fear. You just will be. Look at verse 10. So here's, here's Israel's response. Initially, they're like, hey, this is a good idea, God. But then they, when they see it, things change. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egypts were the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Again, evidently, it's one thing to hear God's plan, even initially say, "Yeah, God, that's a good idea," and then to actually be placed in the fire. And at the sight of the Egyptians, their faith melted away and fear took over. The Word of God, the character of God, the power of God, in their mind's eye, all shrunk as those Egyptians became so big, even eclipsing God in their minds. Now, as we keep reading, you might say, well, at least they had the sense to, to call out to God, to direct their eyes to God at the end. Look at the end of verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. But understanding, even in the Hebrew, and this will be clear in the context, this crying out is not a cry out of salvation, of desperation. It's a cry out of complaint. It's a cry of despair. Look what they say. These are not cries of, for help. These are cries of blame, unbelief. Verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Again, they know what's going to happen. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12, is, it not, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. God, I always knew you were going to do this. I was always skeptical about this plan. What have you done? I told you, God, this would never work. We never even wanted to be set free in the first place. Never mind, they cried out to God, right, for hundreds of years. But in the, in the fire of the trial, everything gets reinterpreted, doesn't it? In the face of their fears, 
their unbelief, their memory has gone very selective. But before we blame them, like, what idiots? Couldn't you just read the previous page? Don't you remember all of those things? I mean, don't we do the same thing, though? Especially when being a Christian gets, makes things kind of harder. Maybe it would have been better if I never became a Christian. God, if you really cared for me, God, God, if you were really there, you would take away these temptations. God, you must, you must want me to suffer in this job because you would get me a better one otherwise. Or, I, I turned that guy down, God, because he's a Christian, and now, now who am I supposed to marry? Way to go, God. Thanks a lot. And we've all been there. Unbelief, doubt. It's just unbelief creeping in. And again, where our vision is locked in on our circumstance, where our trouble is, if that's where our focus, then we've lost sight about how big our God truly is. So next, Moses wakes them up with these three commands to combat their fears and their doubts and their unbelief. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Let's take each of those commands. First, fear not. Or more literally, stop being afraid. You have no business being afraid right now, so just stop it. And you can imagine... (laughs) tapping Moses' shoulder. Look around! Do you see all those Egyptians? You're telling us to not be afraid? Stop being afraid. You have lost sight who is on your side. You have no business being afraid. Next, he tells them, stand up and stand firm. Don't waver or move. Don't abandon your hope so quickly. Or you might ask them, where are you going to go? Remember when many were leaving Jesus because of his difficult teachings in John 6? He even asked his disciples, well, are you guys going to go too? And in that time, Peter got it right and he said, no, you have the words of life. Where can we go? Stand firm. Stand firm on the hope of the gospel. Namely, why? Even when the fears and temptations arise, know this, the gospel hasn't changed. Praise God. It's sure. It's solid. God hasn't changed. His word hasn't changed, even when all of your circumstances have, you see. Don't move away from Him. But third, He commands them, see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. I just love this. Just sit back and watch, Israel. Don't do a thing. See what God's going to do. Namely this, it's a work that you're not going to help with. It's a work you don't contribute to, you don't add anything to, you don't set it up. You just need to sit back, so to speak, sit down and be quiet, or stand up and be quiet, right? And watch the Lord do His thing. He's a Savior of His people, and He's going to do it, and He's going to do it with no help from you. Such that, listen to the way Moses sums all this up in verse 14. 
The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And we sang it. The battle is the Lord's. You don't even get to march around the city and yell like they do at Jericho for the walls to come down. You get to be silent. See how the Lord will fight for you. How the Lord alone will save you. That is the truth that will silence your fears. Now, maybe that kind of offends you because you want to do something. You want, you want to offer something. You want to add something. You want to pay God back. What, what do you mean? I can't just sit back and receive and let Him do it all. Oh, but this is the glorious truth of salvation by grace alone and faith alone. And it's not because you get to be lazy. But suffice it to say here, it's a glorious truth that salvation is all the work of God and none of yours. And why is that such good news? Why would you say that? Because, get this, if it's in His hands and His hands alone, then our salvation, and this is the only way, by the way, but then our salvation is safe and secure forever, for no one, Jesus says, can pluck you out of His hand. Or why, in summary... Because it's His work. That's why it's secure. It's about His fighting at the cross defeated sin and hell, not your faith. It was His resurrecting power defeated and conquered death, not your church attendance. It's His risen life right now stands at the Father's right hand pleading for you. Again, not by your works, not by your desires, not by your merits. Oh, look at little Ricky. He really loves you, God. That's not why this, what he pleads. What he pleads is, my wounds paid for him, and it's done. See the salvation of our God. I took care of it, Jesus says. There's nothing more to add. And he does that. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in and by Christ alone. So then what for the glory of God alone? That's the gospel. That's the Christian message. And that's not only true as he initially saves us and brings us to faith, but the whole Christian life is one of faith, full reliance on God, not ourselves. And so what does that mean? Does that mean we just let go and let God No, not exactly. If that means I then just can ignore His Word, His commands, His responsibility He gives us, as if you can say, well, God will take care of that. No, actually, He's going to ask you to step forward in faith, in reliance upon Him, into places you think you can't, and maybe you know you can't handle. But you step forward because you trust Him. He's called you to it. And so we see that even with our responsibilities, His commands, we must rely upon Him. Again, I thought a brother captured this tension so well of what this means when he wrote this. He says, God tells us to be still. That doesn't mean you abdicate responsibility and do nothing. It means you take responsibility for what is your responsibility, but you leave the rest to God. Our problem is often that we take the responsibility for what is not our responsibility. For example, he says, I'm responsible for being a good parent, but I'm not responsible for the choices of my children. I must leave that to God and be still. 
I'm responsible for being a good employee, but I'm not responsible for the actions of my boss. I must leave that to God and be still. I'm responsible for telling others the gospel, but I'm not responsible for their salvation. I must leave that to God and be still. And ultimately, while I'm responsible for my sin, I'm not responsible for achieving my forgiveness. I must leave that to God and be still. To be faithful to what He's called us. What does that mean? We have to be still, but that means keeping our eyes on Him the whole time. At the work of the cross, that's where He saved us. That's where He's forever perfected us. You can do nothing to change that. You can't tarnish it by your stumbling, nor can you improve upon it either. And do we dare not? Christ did the work of salvation. But this too means we keep our eyes on Him as we faithfully execute those responsibilities to all that He's called us, placed in our life. But none of it, none of it, can we do it or right, can we do it for God's glory if we don't keep our focus tethered to Him? looking to Him by faith, depending upon Him. And is that not what our Lord had said when He said this? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray to Him.